We've come to the end of another results season and hosting this episode of Invest in the Journey podcast is partner and portfolio manager, Kieran Moore. Sat down with investment analyst, Dan Condon and Subha Kumar to dive into the results of the companies the investment team are watching. As always, the information provided by Munro Partners is for educational purposes only and is not intended to include or constitute as financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from your Australian financial service licensee before making any investment decision. Views held by Munro Partners are current at the time of recording and are subject to change. Hi, my name's Kieran Moore and I'm a portfolio manager at Munro Partners. Today I've got two of our analysts, Dan Condon and Subhu Kumar, who join me to discuss the Q3 earnings season. How are you going, guys? I'm good, thanks, Kieran. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really good. Thanks, Kieran. All right. Well, let's get to it. I know investors have got a lot of questions about some of the companies in the Munro funds that have reported. Um, so let's start with the big guys. Let's start with the big tech companies. Um, maybe let's start with the big tech bellwether in Alphabet. So maybe Subhu, let's start with you. So Sundar Pashai, the CEO, has been really vocal about cost-cutting and managing the expense base through the quarter. So maybe give the investors a sense. Did that come through on the earnings report? Yeah, so in this quarter, I think we haven't really uh, seen that yet. Google did face a little bit of a slowing revenue um, sort of quarter due to lapping really tough comps from 2021. So the macro environment was quite tough for them. And on top of that, they also had FX headwinds. I think what's happened is Google faced really accelerated growth in 2021 and they had a lot of hiring uh, going into this year. I think the stat was they hired about 20% of their total headcount in the last four quarters um, and that sort of was reflected in the operating margin this quarter which came in at 24.8%, slightly below where they've been previously. But I think management has caught on to that and they're now focusing on improving margins Um, and the good thing is Google really does have a lot of control over where they can take their margins and I think they will be focused on slowing hiring into 2023 and we'll see the effects of that uh, in the coming quarters. Got it. That makes sense. So so you mentioned the slowing macro environment. How do you think core search differs versus, say, YouTube, for example, within Google? Because obviously these are two of the important parts of their revenue streams but, but differ, differ somewhat. Yeah, I think Google has a very competitive position in, in search. They're almost at a sort of unass- unassailable position and – that sort of gives them a lot of pricing power. And also early in the year, we saw what happened with Facebook when Apple introduced their privacy measures. Um, I think Google is more protected from that. They don't rely as much on third-party data. And so I think the search is very well positioned. Um, on the YouTube side, they have been facing greater in- competitive intensity from the likes of TikTok and shorter form video that has come online. And so YouTube's been trying to combat that with reels. But the amount of monetization they've had on that side is less. And so... I think they've had a slight pricing negative mix shift, but I think going forward, both platforms are are very key platforms and I think we'll see them continue to take share in the advertising market. That's great. Very comprehensive. So, so now we've got Alphabet that trades on sort of sub 10 times. It's, it's 40, but our number. Um, What do you think investors are looking for from here? Because this is a, a, a large cap company with lots of cash and and doing a $70 billion buyback. Um, so, so it looks like a pretty attractive investment on, on a medium term view. What are investors looking for in the short term? Yeah, I think shorter term, I think people are looking to see a bottoming out in the advertising market's you know, revenue growth. And I think that's what has sort of driven the valuation to where it is. But like you said, on a medium term view, I think it looks very attractive here given, given what Google is as a company. All right. No, that's great, Subhu. Thank you. So we might shift over to you, Dan, and talk about Amazon. 
so Amazon was down quite significantly in the aftermarket as soon as it reported its results. And I know they gave a fairly weak guide into what should be a fairly strong period for them with the holiday season coming up. What, what were investors most disappointed about with the Amazon result? And can you take us through how the numbers played out? Yeah, so the key concerns with Amazon is that they need to improve their profitability. So e-commerce still remains an unprofitable segment for them. The real issue here is earlier in the year, that they, they, they told investors that they'd start to show some improvement here. Now, as the second biggest retail in the world, we back them that they will find a path to profitable growth. And we see it's sort of attractive given the inherent earnings leverage in shifting such a big revenue base from unprofitability to profitability. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess it shows with Amazon versus, say, Alphabet, for example, that they are a much more physical business. So they ship goods all over the place, all over the world, uh, and it will take time for them to reach this profitability. We've got full confidence, I guess, in CEO Andy Jassy and the management team that they will be able to turn this around and translate that profitability into earnings upgrades in the future. So maybe um, continuing on Amazon, Dan, you know, how about AWS? That's the big profitability engine when we talk about profits for Amazon. And that, the outlook for that business was fairly soft and, and that did surprise investors, including us, to a certain extent. Can you maybe just touch on what's going on there? Yeah, so as, as you said, um, Amazon came out with weak guidance for AWS um, and basically just more evidence of the deceleration continuing. So we had 36% sort of growth year on year in Q1 and that's down to 275 now in Q3. And so naturally the market assigns a lower multiple to that growth. What we've got to keep in mind here is that the law of large numbers sort of comes into play here. So this is a business segment that's gone from zero to 80 billion in annual revenue over 10 years. And and really this just can't accelerate forever. So although the business is slowing, it is off off a very high base. And yeah, that's something to keep in mind. That's great. And I I guess the point to summarise there is that we do still see a path for migration of workloads to the cloud. So Amazon and in in particular AWS is still going to be a critical part of of business workloads going into the future. So following on from AWS, Subu, I know you've done a lot of work on the digital enterprise area of interest. So let's touch on Microsoft and and in particular Azure. So maybe give investors an an insight into how Azure results came in and and what our expectations were there. Yeah, I think this quarter their constant currency growth was in line with where most investors were expecting. It was 42% on, as Dan said, a very high base around a $40 billion revenue run rate. I think where investors were slightly disappointed was on the forward guidance that the company gave, which came in at around 37% for next quarter. But I think the uh, important thing to keep in mind is they are growing at uh, very high rates on a very high base, um, and so we shouldn't get too too pessimistic. Great. And following on from Microsoft and, and obviously AWS, in our digital enterprise area of interest, ServiceNow is obviously a big exposure. And it's an emerging SaaS play, really, that we've had over a number of years now. And that stock really performed well on the day of its results. Can you maybe take investors through the result there and what was so impressive that the company performed well on, on the day? Yeah, I think people were really excited by the resilience that ServiceNow is showing in a very tough environment. A lot of other enterprise SaaS companies um, did downgrade, such as Microsoft and, and Team, although they were slight downgrades. Uh, ServiceNow had uh, very strong top-line growth as well as CRPO growth, which is the sort of order book for software companies. Um, and that sort of showed the strong growth profile going forward. And so I think that's um, that was the main reason for uh, ServiceNow's um, positive reaction. Excellent. Oh, that's great. 
And so maybe, Dan, if you want to sum it up broadly, you know, when we came into the Q3 earnings, what were we sort of looking for as a whole? Um, we've touched on Alphabet, we've touched on Amazon, Microsoft and now ServiceNow. Now, what were we really looking for for our portfolio companies across the board? Yeah, so in the months leading into Q3 earnings, we saw a handful of companies issue pre-warnings um, and yeah, warning of significant earnings misses. Um, and so essentially what we were looking for is companies that were resilient in the face of a deteriorating macro backdrop. It's also important to we – ha- we had to be forward-looking. So stocks are obviously priced off earnings expectations and if companies were, to cu- were going to come out and, and give a weak, issue weak guidance, then that would be subsequently punished in the stock price. And so – Maybe taking a step back and looking at back at the results season from a Munro perspective, um, yes, we avoided some major blow-ups, which, which is probably attributable to our sort of bottom-up modelling, um, which, which we do a lot of, but the weakness in big tech was definitely a headwind for us. That makes sense. So really what you're saying there is that stocks are following earnings uh, and earnings growth is always what we're looking for. And so when we invest and, and when we look at growth companies from all around the world, we're not just focused on tech and, and growth investing is obviously a lot, in a lot of industries uh, in climate change and innovative healthcare. So today, innovative healthcare is our biggest area of interest in the funds. So maybe, Dan, we had United Health report results fairly early in the reporting period and that's been a top five holding for the long only and long short funds in, in more recent months. How did the market take that result? And do you want to give an, in, investors an insight into how the company reported? Yeah, so this, this follows on really well. So this is one that really fits the script of resiliency that we just touched on. Yeah, so being relatively immune to the macro, we, we see health, managed healthcare as, as a sort of structural issue that, that grows regardless of where interest rates or inflation is. Um, and so at Q3, United Health delivered another beat and raise, um, as was the case in Q2. Uh, and so, yeah, the medical loss ratio came in better than expected for United Healthcare, and Optum strength continued, which is which is a really really good asset for them. Yeah, and they're just yeah positioned themselves really well for higher rates, labour pressure, broader inflation with with price, which is relatively inelastic in this space. Excellent. So, really, a good example of the S curve outrunning the macro in the innovative health space. Yeah, absolutely. So in the innovative health space, we've also got our life sciences and diagnostics companies. So that's companies like Thermo Fisher and Danaher. And so those companies are really those critical inputs into the healthcare industries and healthcare systems all around the world. So we'd normally expect those companies to be quite resilient. So I know, Subu, that they've had um, some issues or some headwinds with a stronger US dollar. So do you want to explain to investors how those results came in? Yeah, I think in the space, there were a few companies that reported a slowdown in the bioprocessing space in terms of new orders. Um, and that was reflected in Sartorius's result. But I think with Danaher, that wasn't as reflected. And I think we're more confident about Danaher's prospects. They are facing some tough comps coming out of COVID. And that was a little bit of an inventory buildup. But we think Danaher still you know, is at a book to bill ratio that's close to one. Yeah, which, which gives us confidence that their revenue will continue to be resilient. Excellent. So the last area in our innovative health area of interest is really around this obesity opportunity where we still see good opportunity for earnings upgrades into 2023. And we've got two stocks there in particular uh, that we're quite excited about on a medium-term view. So Subu, maybe following on from those life sciences and diagnostics companies, do you want to give us an insight or give investors an insight into how we thought about Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk as they reported earnings? Yeah, so these are some new areas that we've gotten into, uh, which we're quite excited about as they present some idiosyncratic growth opportunities. Both Novo and Lilly are looking at creating a new drug for obesity and 
France is almost a duopoly market at the moment. And given their sort of first mover advantage, we think they can get a large share in a very um, large addressable market that's quite underpenetrated right now. And in the recent result, uh, Nova was Nova had a pretty positive reaction given that their obesity drug grew, I think, 63% year over year and beat sort of consensus estimates. And we think they have the potential to do that going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the fascinating areas with this obesity drug is that it's it really is a game-changing opportunity for the global obesity market, which we think is about 650 million people on a global basis. And only a very small share of those 650 million people are actually treated with pharmaceuticals today. So it's got a long runway, these companies, a long runway for earnings growth ahead. Okay, so that's innovative healthcare where we still see good earnings opportunities ahead. What about digital payments? So digital payments, Dan, we've really focused down to the core names, which are Visa and MasterCard. And so they're obviously subject to uh, consumer spending levels all around the world, whether that's um, cross-border or recreation spending or even spending on things like food and groceries. So how did those companies report in light of potentially what's becoming a weaker and weaker macro environment? Yeah, so, so what's really unique about these payment networks is that they're actually one of the few inflation beneficiaries. So if we just think about sort of a spending shift from discretionary items, so let's say investment in the home or apparel to energy and food, which, which we've sort of seen over the last six to nine months as, as financial conditions tighten, this actually has very little impact or little to no impact on, on MasterCard and Visa's earnings as, as they're just clipping the ticket basically when, whenever you tap your card. Even if you think about cutting back on your grocery bill, let's say 10%, but, but you're in, in an environment where everything costs 10% more, payment volume holds up here. So, so that, that's why we think that, that they reported such strong results at Q3. Another sort of, another sort of tailwind that, that's coming into play is, is this cross-border reopening. So MasterCard delivered 57% year-on-year growth on a constant currency basis in, in this sort of segment. And this is people just itching to travel again. And, and we think this tailwind is still yet to play out entirely with restrictions still in Asia and, and still rolling lockdowns throughout. And it's also important to note that this is a creep to margins as people would sort of realise as they charge a substantially higher fee here. This strong operating leverage allows them to manage earnings through this macro uncertainty. No, that makes sense. It's a really important point, I think, um, one that is often misunderstood by investors. That So if, if spending shifts away from discretionary items for Visa and MasterCard – and shifts more towards things like food and grocery and energy bills, then Visa and MasterCard are actually agnostic really, aren't they, with, with where that spending is coming from. They're simply the, the critical input supplier or the rails, if you like, to process those payments. So they, they can actually be a beneficiary of uh, an inflationary environment, which I think is, is commonly misunderstood. Exactly right. And Dan, how are we thinking about the valuation of these companies? They've obviously pulled right back and, and they look like decent opportunities on a medium-term view. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we see these companies, these payment networks, entrenched in this sort of payment infrastructure on low 20s PE multiples with, with sort of growth algorithms, top line, mid-teens and bottom line higher than that. So we, we, th- we think that this sort of growth algorithm sets up is really attractive yeah, for the price we're paying for it today. Okay, great. So climate change is our second biggest exposure in the funds today. And it's an area where, again, we see acceleration in earnings growth into 2023 and beyond, really supported by things like the European energy crisis and also supported by things like the US IRA bill. So maybe, Dan, sticking with you, given we've got uh, such a focus on this area of interest and we see big opportunities here, 
I know you've done a lot of work on this area of interest. So maybe do you want to highlight to investors a name that we've been following in this space that's that's reported earnings really positively and, and we still see a good a good path for earnings upgrades next year? Yeah, so so the one I'd pick out, Kieran, would be First Solar. Um, they're a US-based solar module manufacturer. Uh, we actually met with them yesterday and, and sort of yeah, gave us even more confidence on, on their growth trajectory going forward. So basically... The, the old investment thesis for First Solar was that utilities and developers were looking to reshore their supply chains to the US amidst sort of geopolitical risks. You had um, the anti-dumping and countervailing duty investigation last year and just human rights concerns. And obviously this, this was a, at a higher cost to the utilities um, given that Chinese competitors produce these modules at a much lower price. Now with the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, um, firstly it provides domestic manufacturing tax credits to First Solar but also with these utilities um, and, and developers who, who can claim production tax credits on basically yeah, generation. In order to gain the full extent of the credit, they need a certain percentage of domestic content per solar module. And so net-net, this makes them cost competitive with their Asian competitors, which is really positive for First Solar as, as one of the only players here. And so on the call, they came out and said that they were almost entirely sold out of capacity through to 2026, and, and they've actually been able to increase the price in their backlog. So we saw bookings for the quarter 15% higher than the prices they were realising today. And that's before any sort of adders, which, which they can claim another sort of 10%, we think. And so, yeah, what bet with for solar is that they can take this capital, reinvest it into more capacity, and, and the sort of virtuous cycle goes on. And so, yeah, we see them as a cornerstone of US solar growth, an industry we see growing sort of mid-teens, CAGAR through to the end of the decade, and... I mean, at COP27, we, we sort of hope to hear more about the US's plans to reshore supply chains and, I mean, especially polysilicon supply, which, which, is, which is relatively in its infancy in the US. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a quick sort of overview of First Solar, Kieran. Excellent. So what you're saying is there's a company here that it's essentially right at the start of the S-curve opportunity and, and benefiting from that sort of regulatory support or that 10-year regulatory runway now in the US in particular. Uh, so, so it sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, 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 Absolutely. All right. Well, that's great, guys. Thank you very much for wrapping up the Q3 earnings season. I guess to summarise, you know, it seems like a fairly mixed earnings season on, on face value. You know, we had some, some slightly disappointing results from the big tech bellwethers that, that were quite vocal about their ambitions to cut costs but didn't really flow through into the, into the earnings numbers. We still see good opportunities there on a medium-term view, but I suppose our focus has shifted really into into focusing on finding those earnings upgrades, and and we think that is going to come from places like innovative health and also climate change, where we just mentioned that ten-year regulatory runway that we have. So, from a macro perspective, it's a difficult backdrop at the moment for companies to report. We've got rising interest rates that is clearly causing a slowdown. So, it's going to be interesting to see how these companies report into earning into twenty twenty three and beyond. Really, our focus is that earnings growth. It always comes back to earnings growth and and that's what we're focused on finding for 2023. We hope you enjoyed the episode and for more information about our investment process or active management, head to our website at www.monroepartners.com.au. 